0: 1801. I have just returned from a visit to my landlord, the solitary neighbour that I shall be troubled with. This is certainly a beautiful country. In all England, I do not believe that I could have fixed on a situation so completely removed from the stir of society. A perfect misanthropist's heaven. And Mr. Heathcliff and I are such a suitable pair to divide the desolation between us. A capital fellow. He little imagined how my heart warmed towards him when I beheld his black eyes withdraw so suspiciously under his brows as I rode up, and when his fingers sheltered themselves with a jealous resolution still further in his waistcoat as I announced my name. "'Mr. Heathcliff?' I said. A nod was the answer. "'Mr. Lockwood, your new tenant, sir.' "'I do myself the honour of calling as soon as possible after my arrival "'to express the hope that I have not inconvenienced you "'by my perseverance in soliciting the occupation of Thrushcross Grange. "'I heard yesterday you had some thoughts. "'Thrushcross Grange is my own, sir,' he interrupted, wincing. "'I should not allow anyone to inconvenience me if I could hinder it. "'Walk in.' "'The walk-in was uttered with closed teeth and expressed the sentiment to go to the juice. Even the gate over which he lent manifested no sympathizing movement to the words, and I think that circumstance determined me to accept the invitation. I felt interested in a man who seemed more exaggeratedly reserved than myself. H.P. <laughs>
1: That dude does not know what he's stepping in. (laughs) No, it's that moment
2: right before you find out somebody is terrible. Like, you know, you're at the store and there's a long line. It's not moving. The person in front of you turns around and shakes their head and you say to them, you know, you commiserate like, yeah, this is ridiculous. And they go, I know there's so many Asians in here. (laughs) Like, what? Oh, whoa, hold on. Wait a minute. I thought we were just a couple of grumps. I didn't know this is what I was signing up for. Because Heathcliff is not a Capital Fellow. Oh, no. But he is the hero of this month's novel.
1: Well, that's in quotes, man. The central figure, perhaps, is a <laughs> sure. better. Sure. And that is the opening of Emily Bronte's Weathering Heights, a novel that old H.P. Lovecraft was really fond of. And that's why we're talking about it here on the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast.
2: We are here at hppodcraft.com. My name is Chad Pfeiffer.
1: And I'm Chris Lackey. And our reader this week is our own Yorkshire Rose, Rachel Lackey. Yay! Who grew up only a few miles from where this story is supposed to take place. Yeah. I have yet to actually jog or walk on the moors. Really? I see them. I see them all the time. I could see them from my bedroom window. Mm-hmm. But the desolation holds some fear for me.
2: (laughs) Well, they can be dangerous, right? The American Werewolf in London is clear on this point. Yeah. Stay clear of the Moors.
1: So Lovecraft had some Mm -hmm. stuff to say about this story. And I think we should listen to what Lovecraft had to say. We have Andrew
3: Lehman reading for us. Quite alone, both as a novel and as a piece of terror literature, stands the famous Wuthering Heights, 1847 by Emily Bronte with its mad vista of bleak, windswept Yorkshire moors and the violent, distorted lives they foster. Though primarily a tale of life and of human passions in agony and conflict, its epically cosmic setting affords room for horror of the most spiritual sort. Heathcliff, the modified Byronic villain hero, is a strange dark waif found in the streets as a small child and speaking only a strange gibberish till adopted by the family he ultimately ruins. That he is, in truth, a diabolic spirit rather than a human being is more than once suggested, and the unreal is further approached in the experience of the visitor who encounters a plaintive child ghost at a bow-brushed upper window. Between Heathcliff and Catherine Earnshaw is a tie deeper and more terrible than human love. After her death, he twice disturbs her grave and is haunted by an impalpable presence which can be nothing less than her spirit. The spirit enters his life more and more, and at last he becomes confident of some imminent mystical reunion. He says he feels a strange change approaching, and ceases to take nourishment. At night he either walks abroad or opens the casement by his bed. When he dies, the casement is still swinging open to the pouring rain, and a queer smile pervades the stiffened face. They bury him in a grave beside the mound he has haunted for 18 years. And small shepherd boys say that he yet walks with his catherine in the churchyard and on the moor when it rains. Their faces, too, are sometimes seen on rainy nights behind that upper casement at Wuthering Heights. Miss Bronte's eerie terror is no mere gothic echo, but a tense expression of man's shuddering reaction to the unknown. In this respect, Wuthering Heights becomes the symbol of a literary transition, and marks the growth of a new and sounder school.
2: Well, I think Lovecraft is right that Wuthering Heights stands alone. Mm -hmm. There's uh, not quite another book like this. It is very powerful, it's very strange, and it is a very trying read, I think.
1: I remember when I first read this, I was a teenager, I must have been 14 years old, maybe 15, and I pushed my way through the whole book, and I, I vividly remember thinking all these characters are just horrible people and I couldn't be rid of them fast
2: enough. <laughs> so, so how do you feel now uh, so many years later? I still feel that way. <laughs> you were right.
1: I was right. My analysis then was correct. So, <laughs>
2: well, so I thought... I wasn't sure I thought I'd read it or maybe started to and given up it was when my sister was in high school Mm -hmm. she had cancer she had to spend a couple of years at home being tutored and she was two years older than me so I took it on myself to read everything she was reading to help her with her homework but also to give me a leg up because then I would have already read the stuff when I got into her grade nerd but she got assigned so this is total nerd she got assigned to Wuthering Heights and good a brother as I was I read maybe the first few chapters and I said you know what this is your problem (laughs) I don't care what else is going on I don't have to read this and then I had never had it assigned either in high school or college. So this was actually my first time through.
1: Oh wow, okay. Well, let's talk a bit, uh, you know, about the author. Emily Bronte. She was born in Thornton, uh, which is in the West Riding of Yorkshire in 1818. She was one mm-hmm. of six children. First the eldest sister was Charlotte Bronte, then Maria and Elizabeth who both died in childhood, Branwell, Emily, and then Anne.
2: Branwell was the the only boy.
1: They moved to Haworth soon after, I think, Anne was born, and then their mother died of cancer. The older girls got sent off to boarding school, which was horrible. The typhoid epidemic hit, and then that's what killed uh, Maria and Elizabeth when Mm. they were off at school. Branwell got educated by their father. Father was a total jerk. Made the kids (laughs) hang out in a room all day, like quiet. Since they were stuck in a room, they got into writing and making up fantasy worlds. One of them was called Angria. I could see why that would be a world <laughs> for them, and another was called uh, Gondel. Gondel. I think they were kind of proto role players. They definitely were. Very little of these uh, these stories and poems that they wrote about these fantasy worlds actually exists. They talk about having written them in letters and things that are still around.
2: They exist in Emily's poetry, actually. Yeah. There were lots of uh, stories written and little plays written and none of that exists. But And I'm not totally positive the father was a complete jerk. He was obviously distraught after his wife Maria died. And, and she died shortly after Anne was born, as you said, of cancer. And I think that figures into this book, that idea of losing the mother and childbirth or right after. Yeah. So her aunt, Elizabeth, moved it moved in with them to help care for the girls from Cornwall. And yeah. I think she was very pious and strict. There was a clergy daughter school that Emily was enrolled in, like Charlotte had been. Yeah. But when her sisters died, she brought she was brought home to help out. She was essentially a housekeeper for most of her life, yeah. uh, a little like our character Nellie in here. And I think it was both typhoid fever and tuberculosis that killed the sisters. So there's a lot of sudden illness in Wuthering Heights, and I swear to God, it can seem a little silly and convenient sometimes. But if you think about how she grew up surrounded by these very quick, striking illnesses, yeah. it does make a lot of sense that that would happen.
1: Reading about her and her upbringing, mm-hmm. I wonder if it requires a somewhat unhappy childhood to be interested in science fiction and fantasy. As a kid, you have to have some level of unhappiness that draws you into other worlds, that you mm-hmm. can find joy and purpose.
2: I'm not sure if you have to be unhappy to enjoy science fiction and fantasy, but I think that those worlds can definitely provide escape for somebody who is unhappy. I think all children are unhappy a great deal of the time, whether sure. they have a good upbringing or not. Yeah. In terms of what you're talking about with Emily, let me quote this. It's from the intro to Emily's poetry in the Norton Anthology of Literature by Wynn. Oh, okay. Because their father was an intellectual of sorts, the children children had access to a literary collection that included not only the works of writers like Milton, Byron, and Scott, but also the latest issues of contemporary periodicals like Blackwood's magazine. Equally obsessed with politics and poetry, history and fiction, they began early to incorporate such matters into what Charlotte called their bed plays, elaborate fantasies which were eventually to become more real to Emily than her daily life. See, I think that's what you're talking about there. Most notably, when their father brought Branwell a set of wooden soldiers, each child chose a figure with which to identify. Emily's was Perry, named after her childhood. Childhood hero Edward Perry, the Arctic Explorer, and at first this dashing character figured in plays primarily of Charlotte and Branwell's invention. Eventually, however, Emily, together with her sister Anne, incorporated his adventures into a series of sagas that were uniquely their own. These were the chronicles of Gondol which you were talking about. Yeah. An imaginary country in the North Pacific that was ruled by a tempestuous queen who had all kinds of different names. Astonishingly, these two young women sustained their involvement in the history of this imaginary country long past their teens. Much of Emily Bronte's poetry was conceived as part of a gondol cycle whose prose portions have been lost. So they were very much living in this imaginative, fictive world. And I think that the Catherine and Heathcliff are spending a lot of their time as children in those types of worlds uh, as well. So anyway, fantasy world's definitely a big part of her life, but even though she had housekeeping duties i don't know if she was completely unhappy she did have a lot of freedom at home to do as she wanted and the reason that boarding school was tough for her was because while she was there she wanted to be at home she attended rowhead briefly where charlotte was a teacher actually also even spent six months teaching herself emily did at law hill charlotte wrote about those experiences i felt in my heart that emily would die if she did not go home her ties to home and the freedom that she had there were so strong and i think that Attachment to the small world of their home in Yorkshire informs the book, obviously, quite a bit. Oh, yeah. At one point, both Charlotte and Emily moved to Brussels to study because they were preparing to found their own school. But I believe their aunt died, so she moved home again in 1842, and after that point, she never left. It was around this time that Charlotte came across some of her poetry and thought it had a peculiar music, wild, melancholy, and elevating. Charlotte put together a book of her poems with some of Emily's and some of Anne's, and she published it in 1846 in a book called Poems by Cure, Ellis, and Acton Bell. Important to note that these were the pseudonyms that the three novelists used Mm -hmm. so that people didn't know they were women. Wuthering Heights was first published as a novel by Ellis Bell. Unfortunately, that book, the poetry book, only sold two copies. Oh, 2,000 copies. No, two, literally two, Two, Um, but the ladies were undaunted. They went on and said, poetry's not working out for us. Let's try our hands at writing novels. And that's what gives us Jane Eyre by Charlotte, Agnes Gray by Anne, and of course, this book Wuthering Heights, which was published in a volume, self-published by Charlotte with Agnes Gray.
1: We'll talk more about El Bronte or the month, but we want to get through this book. So let's just get into it. Chapter one. The whole book is an account by this guy, Mr. Lockwood, in 1801. And he's a southern fella, so south of England. He comes up north to recuperate. He rents this sweet-ass manor house called Thrushcross Grange from the pro-slash-antagonist Heathcliff. The Grange is out in the middle of nowhere in the moors of Yorkshire, and Lockwood decides that he wants to go visit his landlord, who lives also out in the middle of nowhere, just a few miles away, at this place called wuthering heights and wuthering is a regional adjective meaning fierce winds but i've never heard anybody use wuthering out here no
2: no it says in the book it's a significant provincial adjective so you should have heard it living
1: up there. i should have but i think it was a provincial a- adjective uh 200 years ago
2: right it's descriptive of the atmospheric tumult to which its station is exposed in stormy weather pure bracing ventilation they must have up there at all times indeed one may guess the power of the north wind blowing over the edge by the excessive slant of a few stunted firs at the end of the house and by a range of gaunt thorns all stretching their limbs one way as if craving alms of the sun. So the landscape itself is twisted, yeah. and I, I think it represents what Lovecraft called in that quote the violent, distorted lives of the people living there.
1: Yeah, It's really windy here. That's true. <laughs> Heathcliff is, as Lovecraft calls him, a Byronic kind of character. He's dark, brooding, barely able to keep his constant anger under wraps but he also looks the part of a gentleman he's mad bad and dangerous to know <laughs> Weathering Heights has all of these dogs running around the house, and mm-hmm. I've known folks like this with unruly pets that just run roughshod over everything, and it just drives me
2: crazy. When you walk in the door and you get tackled by some gigantic Marmaduke, you know? Look,
1: yeah. Look, just let
2: Titan hump you a few times. He'll <laughs> lose interest as soon as he realizes you're Asian. <laughs> what? <laughs> That was the same character from the store. Oh, I just thought, just thought I, I created him, so I thought I'd throw him in. There <laughs> By the way, that character that hates Asian people, still a nicer person than Heathcliff.
1: Oh, my God. <laughs> so Heathcliff leaves Lockwood alone in a room with the dogs, and then they get all snarly with him. This seems like it's a power play on Heathcliff's part to me. And I think this is a literary device as well, showing kind of an external representation of his inner bestial nature.
2: Absolutely. And dogs throughout the story are significant for different reasons. Once again, this is a universe where it does not pay to be an animal.
1: You don't want to be an animal in this this book, no. The housekeeper rescues Lockwood. He gets really ticked at Heathcliff, but since Heathcliff is so charming, he decides, you know what? I'll come back tomorrow. And continue visiting with you.
2: Because Heathcliff, you know, he didn't show any good humor at all until he sees Lockwood menaced by the dogs. And that's when he cracks a smile because he's amused that he's he's frightened. (laughs) And this is important to keep in mind. You know, one might be tempted to think that Heathcliff is only cruel to those he's perceived a slight from. Right. But no, I mean, he is terrible to everybody. This Lockwood guy didn't do anything wrong. Yeah. And I think Dracula echoes this opening. All right. We talked about it then the horrors of inhospitality. When Jonathan Harker arrives, there's nobody to take care of him. No. He doesn't understand what he's supposed to do. There's wolves around. So this really put me in mind of that beginning of Dracula.
1: Yeah, but Dracula's nicer.
2: Yes, Dracula quite a bit nicer. He makes
1: him some chicken, you know? Chapter two. The next day, he goes uh, back to Wuthering Heights, but it's cold and it starts to snow a bit as he gets near. When he gets there, no one answers the door. So this old servant guy, Joseph, says Heathcliff's not there. This young guy comes and lets him in. This young guy is Harriton, uh he's important but we don't know that yet inside there's this young beautiful woman sitting by the fire this is kathy but it's not the kathy that's katherine and we'll get to her later but this is lil k okay
2: well i wish they'd spelled it with a k the names in this alone would be enough to make a teenager twist their own head off you know because you've got (laughs) katherine earnshaw who becomes katherine linton but wanted to be katherine Heathcliff, and then her daughter katherine linton who does become katherine
1: Heathcliff. yeah when she marries Linton Heathcliff. Yeah. It's just a small group of people, but you still need a chart. So Lockwood thinks that Kathy is Heathcliff's wife and he tries to talk with her, but she's just totally rude and stuck up to him. So Heathcliff shows up and he's like, oh, your, your wife's really cool. And then Heathcliff's like, Lockwood, you idiot. She's my daughter-in-law. Obviously, not obvious at all. Poor Lockwood's like, How I don't, how was I supposed to know? Okay, sorry. And then, you know, your son's really cool. And then he's like, Lockwood, you idiot. That's not my son. My son is dead. Lockwood, poor guy. He just,
2: he's so confused. And Harrison is a complete savage, too. Yeah. It's disgusting when he eats. He's unkempt. He's clearly uneducated. He just kind of grunts and curses.
1: So all this is going on, and the snow turns into a blizzard. Lockwood is like, Could. Someone guide me home Mm -hmm. because I'm new to this area and there's a blizzard going on and nobody wants to help him. So he's like, okay, fine. I'm going to take a lantern and he leaves on his own. And when Joseph sees him (laughs) leaving with the lantern, he thinks that he's stealing the lantern. Right. So he sends the dogs loose on him. So Lockwood's (laughs) pinned by the dogs and Lockwood is pissed. Rightfully so. He gets so angry and he's yelling that his nose starts bleeding. (laughs) And then Heathcliff just starts laughing at him. Zilla... The housekeeper she takes him in and says you know what i've got a bed for you you can stay the night here
2: right because they just were like sleep in the corner if you want to stay here but we're not putting you up anywhere nobody's gonna lift a finger to help you yeah. if he tries to get home he could get lost or he could fall through the snow and perish yeah also joseph's dialect oh it's a pain in the ass i don't understand a thing he
1: said yeah it's phonetic uh, writing nonsense again which uh usually is just
3: horrible
2: usually it's horrible we don't like it the thing that blew my mind was that it was corrected when emily wrote this that dialect was even more extreme yeah And when Charlotte published the books, she went in and made some changes so that it was a little more understandable, which is hilarious because I didn't understand a thing. I could kind of puzzle out the meaning of what he said. So chapter three,
1: uh, Zilla takes Lockwood to a forbidden room. That Heathcliff, he just doesn't want anybody to go into.
2: When Lockwood's looking at the furniture, there's this bizarre structure in there. It says, It's a large oak case with squares cut out near the top resembling coach windows. Having approached this structure, I looked inside and perceived it to be a singular sort of old-fashioned couch, very conveniently designed to obviate the necessity for every member of the family having a room to himself. In fact, it formed a little closet, and the ledge of a window, which it enclosed, served as a table. I slid back the paneled sides, got in with my light, pulled them together again, and felt secure against the vigilance of Heathcliff and everyone else. So this bed is, to me, a lot like a
1: coffin. Lockwood sees on the ledge by the bed three names are carved into there. Mm -hmm. Catherine Earnshaw, Catherine Linton, and Catherine Heathcliff. He then finds a diary about 25 years ago. It was written by Catherine Earnshaw. Lockwood reads an entry about the day after her father died and her Mm -hmm. cruel brother, Hindley forced Heathcliff and Catherine to sit through one of Joseph's sermons. Uh, Catherine and Heathcliff are super close, and Hindley hates Heathcliff and the fact that they are close. So Lockwood finally gets bored with the book, goes to sleep, and he has some dream about some judgy pilgrims, and then he <laughs> wakes up and hears uh, tapping at the window.
0: I must stop it. I muttered, knocking my knuckles through the glass and stretching my arm out to seize the importunate branch, instead of which... "'my fingers closed on the fingers of a little ice-cold hand. "'The intense horror of nightmare came over me. "'I tried to draw back my arm, but the hand clung to it, "'and a most melancholy voice sobbed. "'Let me in! Let me in!' "'Who are you?' I asked, struggling. "'Catherine Linton,' it replied shiveringly. "'Why did I think of Linton? "'I had read Earnshaw twenty times for Linton.' I'm come home I'd lost my way on the moor as it spoke I discerned obscurely a child's face looking through the window terror made me cruel finding it useless to attempt shaking the creature off I pulled its wrist on the broken pane and rubbed it to and fro till the blood ran down and soaked the bedclothes still it wailed let me in and maintained its tenacious grip almost maddening me with fear how can I I said at length, "'Let me go if you want me to let you in.' The fingers relaxed. I snatched mine through the hole, hurriedly piled the books up in a pyramid against it, and stopped my ears to exclude the lamentable prayer. I seemed to keep them closed above a quarter of an hour, yet the instant I listened again, there was the doleful cry moaning on, "Begone!" I shouted i'll never let you in not if you beg for 20 years it is 20 years mourned the voice 20 years i've been away for 20 years thereat began a feeble scratching outside and the pile of books moved as if thrust forward i tried to jump up but could not stir a limb and so yelled aloud in a frenzy of fright
1: So that's
2: some pretty good scary stuff. And the gore as he cuts her wrist against the broken glass to get her to, you know, that was surprising. Yeah, that's some evil dead kind of stuff. It is evil dead kind of stuff. And it's perhaps a real supernatural incident because she gives him the correct name. Yeah. And she also gives him the correct time period. Mm -hmm. There's detail he couldn't know. He even questions it himself. Why did I say Linton?
1: But it might be a dream as well. That's the, the implication. It's either real or it's a sure. dream. Not, he's not sure. Uh, so Heathcliff hears all the screaming and he comes into the room. Lockwood is angry and says, you got a ghost problem. And Heathcliff <laughs> yells at him. And then Lockwood just, you know, goes, I'm out of here. And he leaves Heathcliff in the room by himself. And then as he's leaving, he stops because he hears Heathcliff calling for Catherine, begging her to return. He says, come in, come in. He sobbed. Kathy, do come. Oh, do once more. Oh, my heart's darling. Hear me this time, Catherine, at last. He knows about the ghost, or he believes she's a ghost. Uh, in the morning, Heathcliff is a total jerk to Baby K again. He <laughs> takes Lockwood home.
2: In the text it says, And you, you worthless. He broke out as I entered, turning to his daughter-in-law, and employed an epithet as harmless as duck or sheep, but generally represented by a dash. I believe Emily Bronte is slyly saying that Heathcliff called her a fucking piece of shit. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm not kidding. As harmless as duck or sheep, I think means
1: fucking shit. Oh. Lockwood's servants thought he had died out in the storm when he returns back to the Grange. And they're super glad he's alive. Chapter four. Lockwood is all secluded. He's tired of being alone and he needs some company. So he rustles up Paula (laughs) Dean. Paula.
2: I was thinking that too.
1: Sorry. Nellie Dean. Nellie. Ellen. One of his housekeepers. She knows what's up over at Wuthering Heights and she's going to give him the skinny. First off, she sorts out who everyone is that he saw at the house. Young Catherine is Catherine Earnshaw slash Linton's daughter. Catherine, the first one that Heathcliff is yelling for, was Nellie's first mistress. Hareton is her mom's brother's kid. Old Kate was the daughter of Mr. Earnshaw, who owned Wuthering Heights back in the day. Baby Kay is the last of the Lintons and Hareton is the last of the Earnshaws. Nellie grew up a servant along with Old Kate and her brother, Hindley.
2: Right. Nellie was basically raised as a foster sister to Catherine and Hindley Earnshaw at Wuthering Heights by their father.
1: And that's important to remember because otherwise,
2: why would she put up with the stuff that she does? Yeah, In a certain respect, she is part of the family. And then, then we actually get into the story. So what? now we're going to go to an inciting incident. You know, what's the thing that breaks everything up that starts the story going? And of course, it's the introduction of Heathcliff because the kids seemed relatively happy with their life and
1: with each other before he showed up. So it starts off when Mr. Earnshaw goes to Liverpool for business and he comes back with a present and he says, hey, kids, I got your present. They're like, yay. And it's a kid. His name's Heathcliff and he's dirty and he's foreign. They had
2: asked him for some toys from Liverpool. He did, did bring those back as well, but they were broken yeah. because he had to hold this kid in, as a you know bundle in his coat the whole time. Yeah. So the, the toys are all busted up. So you can see
1: right away. Yeah, they're not happy about this. They're guy. not happy with who this kid is. He's an orphan. You know, I'm not sure about this, but I feel like the implication is that he might be otherworldly. It says that he they think he's the gypsy brat. Like Lovecraft said, he was on the street speaking gibberish. Gibberish, which could either be the gypsy tongue that he spoke, or it could be exactly. that he was speaking some weird demonic language or some fey language or Yeah,
2: like he's one of these little people from an Arthur Mackenzie. Exactly. Story or
1: something yeah. Like that. So that
2: And he... nobody knew who this kid belonged to. No. Nope. Mr. Earnshaw's a very kind person because he says, I can't I'm not gonna leave this thing. It, it is used for Heathcliff yeah. throughout this description, too, instead of a, a gendered pronoun. Yeah, At this point, he's a thing. He's a thing. You know? yeah. but, but he says, I got to bring it home. And so he tells the servant, you know, wash it, clean it up, let it sleep with the children. Oof. And one weird thing is his history is never revealed in this book.
1: Of course, both Catherine and Henley frickin' hate Heathcliff at first. But Catherine mm-hmm. quickly grows to love him. And Catherine and Heathcliff become inseparable. And Henley, who continues to treat Heath- Heathcliff cruelly starts falling out with the rest of the family because Heathcliff doesn't fight back. Right. He just kind of takes it whenever he's mean to him. And it makes Hindley just look like a total jerk, which he is.
2: We also are getting the idea that Heathcliff is a master manipulator. He knows what he's doing. He's able to take the abuse because he knows it will serve him and it only increases Mr. Earnshaw's affection for him.
1: Mrs. Earnshaw, the mom, is not into Heathcliff. But Pa Earnshaw comes to love the boy as his own son. Yeah. And more than his own son. Yeah. And when Mrs. Earnshaw dies only two years after Heathcliff's arrival at Wuthering Heights, Hindley is essentially left without any...
2: Allies. There are shades of Carmilla here as well. Mm-hmm. The foundling that has dropped off and then wrecks havoc on the home. And one can make an argument that actually Wuthering Heights is a sort of vampire novel.
1: Yeah. As the years go on, Pa Earnshaw gets old and sick. He's angry at Hindley for not letting up on Heathcliff, so he sends him off to college. Pa Earnshaw dies, and now Hindley is on his way back to Weathering Heights. So uh chapter six, Hindley comes back and he's got a wife, Frances, is her name. They get there for the funeral, but as soon as the funeral's over, Henley starts laying in a Heathcliff, basically just demotes him to farmhand, you don't get any education. You don't get to live the good life. You're just going to shovel poo. This is what you get. But Heathcliff, he sucks it up and he just does his job. But when he's done working, him and Catherine seek out fun and they cavort out on the moors.
2: It's kind of like great expectations. You know, when you're delivered into the guardianship of your siblings, it's never a good thing.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so one night when Heathcliff and Special K go out, Henley orders the doors bolted and they're not allowed inside. Nelly totally just ignores him and waits for them to return. But Heathcliff comes back on his own and he tells Nelly that they were over peeking at range which is where the lintons live
2: yeah and they and they haven't had much experience with the lintons even though they're neighbors yeah they see them at church and that's like it
1: and they have two kids edgar and isabella when they're over there peeking through the windows watching them play kind of just to make fun of them i guess is like why they're spying on them they get caught and a guard dog gets sicked on them gets catherine bites her ankle And so they take Catherine in and Heathcliff is like, oh, I want to be with her. And and they're like, no, you're not coming in. Get out of here. We don't like you, dirty kid.
2: and they're speculating on his foreignness they're like I don't know he's American or Indian maybe he's Asian maybe he's Spanish I don't know what he is yeah. but get him out of here I think that this is you know this is the real initial injury done to Heathcliff aside from the abuse he's endured Yeah, he hasn't really been made aware of what his status is in a, in a real tangible way right other than within the family and so and I, and this is relatable I think you know and you might grow up and have friends of yours from the neighborhood mm-hmm. in grade school that then as you get older they leave to go off with the cooler more popular kids who maybe have more money than you or something sure. like that it's that moment where he becomes painfully aware and and this is also a nested account we get the story of what happened at the lintons from heathcliff yeah it's the only time that we're really seeing things from his perspective other than at the end when he describes her ghost and i think it's important because this is the seed of his anger right here and also it shows you his idea of catherine which is that she's not human he says you know i saw that they were full of stupid admiration for catherine and she is so immeasurably superior to them to everybody on earth is she not nelly Talk about putting somebody on a pedestal. Yeah. You think she's better than anybody. And I think that that's a, an opinion that she holds of herself as
1: well. Yep. Uh, so the next day, Mr. Linton comes over and yells at Hindley for being a crappy primary caregiver. <laughs> and Hindley forbids Heathcliff from seeing Catherine. So that ends right. that chapter. We're into chapter seven. So Cat Dog spends the next five weeks at the Grange recuperating. Ma Linton sees that Catherine is not very ladylike and wild and all that noise. So she wants to make a lady out of her. So she teaches her manners and all that jazz. Come Christmas time, she comes back to Wuthering Heights and she's totally different. When she sees Heathcliff, she says, he's dirty. And Mm -hmm. Heathcliff is just really angry about this comment. He's like, I'll be as dirty as I want to be.
2: I feel that way all the time.
1: (laughs) (laughs) The next day, the Lintons are coming over for a meal and Nellie's getting Heathcliff all cleaned up. They find out that Heathcliff wasn't really invited to the meal. In fact, they would only come if Heathcliff wasn't there. Yeah. So he's just extra ticked. And Henley goes to take him and lock him up in the attic. On the way to the attic, Edgar Linton, the boy of the Linton family, throws some shade about Heathcliff's hair. And like a nut, Heathcliff grabs this hot applesauce and throws it in yeah. Edgar's face. <laughs> take that. And so Catherine sides with Heathcliff and she sneaks up to see him when he's up in the attic. And Nellie brings him mm-hmm. down after everybody's left and gives him some supper. Heathcliff, all Frank Castle-like, says i'm gonna get that henley
2: yes Val's revenge
1: this is it's gonna happen he's going down chapter eight nelly goes back to her story francis henley's wife gives birth to a boy and they call him hareton francis doesn't live long past that and she dies nelly gets the job of taking care of the baby yay your mom now yay for as long as we need you to be yeah <laughs> Aww. henley is a shit dad he is all bummed yeah. out that his wife dies so he takes the drinking and he drinks a lot he abuses the servants, especially Heathcliff. Though he takes a beating, he's kind of really loving Hindley's spiral into a hot mess. <laughs> I Well, hey, actually, he's not really that hot, so it's just a mess.
2: So this gets into Emily's bio a little bit, because her brother Branwell was rejected by a married woman whom he been in love with and after that he descended into alcoholism and opium addiction Mm -hmm. by all accounts emily was the one who had to take care of him night after night and deal with him when he came in in his drunken rages and in fact in september 48 it finally got the better of him and he died october 1st was his funeral uh, in 48 and that's the last day that emily ever left the house because at the funeral service she caught a cold she refused to see a doctor she died Two months later, Emily was so sick, the carpenter who made her coffin said he'd never made such a coffin for an adult. It was 5 feet 6 inches in length and 16 inches in width. That's how, that's what Skeleton was that she was by the end.
1: So when Hidley's out, Heathcliff tells Big Kent that he's going to hang out with her all day, but she's not into it. She wants to hang out with the sophisticated Linton kids, and he's not cool enough for her. She doesn't want to tell him that Edgar's
2: coming over. Yes, you know?
1: yeah, but then that. I, know,
2: I you know, I've just got stuff to do. You, you you don't want to hang out with me. You know. Yeah,
1: well, no, that she's going to hang out with the Lintons. That's what she right, says. Right. And then Edgar shows up sans Izzy. So it's like, oh, you want to hang out not with the Lintons. You want to hang out with Edgar. Mm-hmm. So Heathcliff bails. He knows what's going on. Uh, Caddy's spending lots of time with Edgar. She asked Nellie to leave them alone, but Nellie's like, hey, I know what you two are up to. No way. And this is where it gets really effed up for me. Catherine slaps and pinches nelly and then baby harridan starts crying so Catherine shakes the baby and that was it for me that's i was completely done with her at that point and she just gets worse (laughs) from from then on
2: yeah edgar has not seen this
1: in her nature yet she's totally
2: sweet and nice when she's over there at their house
1: he's freaked out by it he's a jerk don't get me wrong but he's not a total nut job and he sees i don't know I, i like edgar okay well, I mean he did he's just weak, but he did say jer- jerky things. I mean he was mean to Heathcliff earlier for no good reason because he's a spoiled brat. I mean he doesn't he doesn't know anything. he's a jerk. Else. that's what he said. he's a jerk, yeah. but yes. he's not on that job. He tries to cool things down. And Catherine flipping boxes his ears. Yeah, she smacks him about a bit. So Edgar's like, you know what? I Forget this. I'm out of here. Yeah. And he leaves. But as he's leaving, he like sees her through the window and he's like, she's so beautiful. Mm-hmm. And he goes back like a freaking idiot.
2: Once she smacked him and he came back to her, I'm like, this guy is doomed. doomed. But I can't say I don't know this guy. <laughs> you know, I kind of think that that's when things got really hot for him. <laughs> He's the kind of guy, he got smacked and then he asked her to marry him. (laughs) What a sap.
1: So Nellie leaves uh, them alone for a bit and then Henley is back and drunk and on a rampage. She goes to warn them. So Edgar splits really fast. Catherine hides in a room. Nellie tries to hide the baby. So it's like, oh man, things. this is where I was like, wow, things are this bad. Mm -hmm. She has to hide the baby from the drunk guy because he... Likes to get his gun out when he's drunk and start waving it around.
2: Yeah. She's got to take the shot out of it, too, and so he doesn't blow anybody away. Yeah. And he threatens to kill them all many times.
1: It's horrible. Uh, so this is chapter nine. This last chapter we'll cover of uh, this episode. We're already way over time here. <laughs> yeah. As Nellie tries to hide Hareton Hindley comes in and catches her trying to hide the baby. So he grabs the boy and is a stumbling drunk. He accidentally drops him over the banister. Mm-hmm. So you think, okay, baby, it's going to die. But guess what? Heathcliff just happens to be below, and he catches the baby. Yeah, poor baby. This poor kid is just it's so horrible. It seems strangely real to me. This whole scene, for some reason, I know it's weird that Heathcliff is there to be at there at the right moment when it happens. Like, it seems almost too convenient, but in the way that it's told, and there's just something about all of this that feels really real to me. Not that I've ever had to deal with domestic violence myself. I
2: mean, I have. Yeah. I mean, I felt that this was pretty accurate. And and I grew up in an alcoholic household where you kind of knew when dad was coming home, you had to hide certain things or not say certain things or just get out of the way. Yeah, My father wasn't violent. He was verbally (laughs) violent, but we didn't have to worry about getting beaten the way these guys do. Although his father, my grandfather, whom I never met, you know, my dad left home when he was 13 because my grandfather was shooting at the kids. In his drunken rages he tried to kill my dad and, and his brothers yeah. so I, I mean all of this stuff hit home with things that were going on in my childhood so i was really relating to this part of the book sad to say yeah. and it and, and it was part of the reason maybe why this was one of the more potent and effective pieces of it for me
1: later that night katie earnshaw tells Nellie that egger asked her to marry him and she said yes and Nellie's like yeah. what about heathcliff you love the shit out of that guy but then she's like hindley Um, has cast Heathcliff down so low that if I marry him, then I'm just going to be some crappy farmhand myself. And that, of course, is the worst thing that a person could be. You know, it's horrible.
2: And she doesn't care about Edgar at all. You know, because Nelly's saying, you're going to meet other handsome guys. I mean, is he really? She's like, he's good enough. He's fine. Her attitude towards him is
1: awful. Yeah. Uh, And by the way, Heathcliff is eavesdropping on this whole talk. And Mm -hmm. Heathcliff gets hurt and pissed about this. And so he just storms out in a fury right before Big K says that she loves Heathcliff more than anything else in the world. And that she and Heathcliff are the same person right but i'm still an asshole so i'm gonna marry this other poor sod and that's the act break because now heathcliff is gonna leave so that night heathcliff runs away from Wuthering heights catherine runs out onto the moors in the rain looking for him crying her eyes out she gets a fever and gets really ill the lintons take care of her at the grange until she gets better but mom pod linton get whatever cathy got so they flip and die <laughs> Three years later, Man. KDE becomes KL by marrying Edgar Linton. Nellie moves over to the Grange to serve Catherine, leaving five-year-old Hareton with his crazy yeah. dad and no women in the house. Just nutty Joseph. That's it. And this this last part, this is what Nellie's talking about here, leaving Hareton This actually made me cry.
0: Much against my inclination, I was persuaded to leave Wuthering Heights and accompany her here. Little Harlton was nearly five years old, "'and I'd just begun to teach him his letters. "'We made a sad parting, "'but Catherine's tears were more powerful than ours. "'When I refused to go, "'and when she found her entreaties did not move me, "'she went lamenting to her husband and brother. "'The former offered me munificent wages. "'The latter ordered me to pack up. "'He wanted no women in the house, he said, "'now that there was no mistress, "'and asked to Halton the curate should take him in hand by and by. "'And so I had but one choice left.' To do as I was ordered. I told the master he got rid of all decent people only to run to ruin a little faster. I kissed Harlton, said goodbye and since then he has been a stranger and it's very queer to think it but I've no doubt he has completely forgotten all about Ellen Dean and that he was ever more than all the world to her and she to him.
2: Oh, it's heartbreaking. It's so heartbreaking they did that to her. And Nellie as a character does offer a bit of a rebuttal to the idea that they're all assholes. Yeah, uh, I know. As you said, she's weak. But, you know, she has a way worse than Heathcliff. Like him, she's a foster. Yeah. She's lower class. Mm-hmm. Unlike him, she doesn't get to screw around on the moors all day. She's you know, She has to work yeah. and then at a certain age she's given a child to raise and that she has it taken from her <sighs> she gets pushed back and forth between these two houses like she's not even a, a human being and she's used and abused by everybody in their machinations with each other right. in their plots but she kind of remains a kind sweet person who wants the best for Heathcliff even near the end so I'm in team Nelly. I think she's, a, she's an alright well how can right you person.
1: not be I mean they're all yeah <laughs> they're so vile like you could mm-hmm. if you're even just a reasonably okay person you would look like a god compared to everybody else in the story <laughs>
2: Yeah, absolutely. Well, again, I think this quarter's fantastic. The vividness of the scenes. I think the supernatural elements were cool. There's really surprising bits of gritty reality. All combined to make it a pretty good read. I was enjoying the book at this point, even though people were bad. Next what we get into next week is when I really started (laughs) falling afoul of it. It started really driving me nuts.
1: I want to thank uh, my wife, Rachel Lackey, for reading and not getting drunk and playing with guns. (laughs) Thank you
2: for for not doing that, my wife. Everybody out there, please just don't do it.
1: And I also want to thank Andrew Lehman for uh, throwing down the Lovecraft in the very beginning of the story as well.
2: Very good. Always great to hear his voice. That's all we have for this supersized edition of the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast. We'll be back at you with more Wuthering
1: Heights next week. I'm Chad Pfeiffer. And I'm Chris Lackey, and we're at H.P hppodcraft.com
0: hp podcast.com.